there and sing with you all. But it is at least necessary today, and I'm thankful that we can do that. It is Advent season. It is Christmas season. There's a word that we often associate with Christmas, with Advent, and that's anticipation. That word just kind of oozes with tension, doesn't it? Anticipation. In fact, when I was a child, I would say that this next picture is often what I was like as I anticipated Christmas. Some of you can identify. That's where you are. Some of you can identify because you have children that are there anticipating, anxious for it. And there is a sense in which not only do we anticipate celebrating Christmas, but the Advent season is also an anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. In fact, as as I studied a little bit about Advent, I discovered that the early church as it celebrated really emphasized more the second coming than the first. And so it's really appropriate for us as we wrap up this series on our core values to think ahead to Jesus' second coming, to think of eternity-rooted hope. We've been examining those core values together And while we have certainly not exhausted all of the core values we could talk about, and we've not dealt with all various theological themes, we have seen some really key core values together. And what better way to wrap those up this morning than thinking about eternity-rooted hope, which is a good introduction for us then into our Advent series over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas Day. And so I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me or on your electronic devices to 2 Peter chapter 3, as we consider what Peter teaches us about this Advent season, about our eternity-rooted hope. In the passage beginning at verse 8, Peter nails two essential truths to the wall of our minds. He wants us to remember these. This is how he wraps up his book, so that you and I would grab a hold of these essential truths about our eternity-rooted hope. The first essential truth is that our hope rests in the certainty, the certainty of God's coming day. Peter will use the word, the day of the Lord, the day of God in this passage, and There's an Old Testament background to that. The Old Testament prophets spoke over and over again about a day that was coming that would be a day of blessing for the people of God and a day of judgment on those who didn't know God. And one of the things that the Old Testament prophets wrestled with is, why hasn't it come yet? And we're going to see Peter discuss that as well. But he challenges us, as the Old Testament prophets did, To look beyond today to the consummation of God's plan and His new world, His new day that's coming. And Peter wants us to grab a hold of this fact that that day is delayed only by God's patience. 
It's not that God is struggling to bring it about. It's not that someone's opposing him. Peter wants us to understand that the only thing that's holding back this coming day is the patience of God. He knows that there are skeptics. In fact, he's dealt with them in the first seven verses of this chapter. Skeptics who are saying, well, God's never going to come back. Jesus is never coming. That day of the Lord, it's never going to arrive. And Peter's dealt with that in those first seven verses. But beginning in verse 8, he's especially talking to those of us who know God, the people of God. And he's addressing the fact that you and I often wonder, why hasn't God done something yet? Why hasn't God come down and pulled the world over for speeding? I mean, you look back at this past week and you think about the so-called Defense of Marriage Act passing in Congress, and you wonder, why doesn't God do something? Things are bad. Peter says, don't lose sight of something. Don't overlook this perspective. Beloved, that one With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. He wants us to understand that God's timing is not our timing. That for God, a day and a thousand years are really no different because He stands above time. The psalmist said the same thing. Maybe that's what Peter's thinking of, Psalm 90 verse 4, when he says, a thousand years are just like yesterday to you. So God stands above time, and so we can't use our human concept of time to judge God's speed in what He's doing, to call Him slow in bringing about the day of the Lord. In fact, Peter goes on and he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God continually puts up with humanity, Peter tells us, because he is patient, because he desires that no one would perish, but, strong contrast, all would repent. In fact, as Peter starts to wrap up this section in verse 15, he says, we should count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So if Jesus came back today, would you be ready to meet him? Do you know him as your Savior? If not, maybe he's delayed coming for you so that you would have another opportunity today to hear the gospel and to repent of your sins and accept him as Savior. Maybe there's somebody that you know, somebody for whom you are praying, perhaps somebody that you're sharing the gospel with And God is waiting. He's delaying for them. Because in His plan, He wants to draw them to salvation. God's day is delayed, not because of any outside factors, but simply because He is patient and wants people to come to know Him in salvation. That day is delayed only by God's patience. That day is also guaranteed by God's promises. Peter says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. In verse 13, he says, but according to His promise. And in verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
Quite literally, he puts that will come first in the sentence. Will come the day of the Lord. Because it is certain, it is resting in the very character and the promises of God. But it's going to come unexpectedly, like a thief, without warning. Peter's drawing on the example that Jesus uses when he teaches in Matthew 24. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. In my previous ministry, uh, three or four times we were robbed. And you know what? Never did those thieves send us a note ahead of time saying, at 2 o'clock tomorrow morning, we're going to break the glass on your door and come in and steal your computers. Because if they'd said that, guess what? We'd have been sitting there with the policeman that was in our congregation and probably several other armed men waiting to meet them. But they didn't warn us. And Peter says, echoing the words of Jesus, there's no warning for the coming of Jesus a second time. There's no warning for the day of the Lord. There's not going to be skywriting that says, Jesus is coming tomorrow, get ready. Because that warning is echoed through the centuries that he could come back at any time like a thief in the night. So be ready. And that's the question that each of us has to address, isn't it? Are we ready? Are we ready to meet him? If you do not know Jesus, don't delay. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. What you do have a guarantee of is that Jesus will come back. That the day of the Lord, which is blessing for the people of God, but judgment for those who don't know Him, will certainly come. And that day will come through God's power. Again, no one else is opposing Him and holding it back. He has the power to bring it about. And Peter begins to describe this day that nothing can stop. Then he describes, first of all, the, the judgment aspect of it, and then he'll get to the blessing aspect. And he tells us what that day will bring. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. The heavens will pass away, literally they will cease to exist with a roar. The roar of the flame of fire, the roar of a sonic boom. I don't know what the sound is, but with some kind of a loud noise. And the heavenly bodies, the very building blocks of creation, will burn up and dissolve. They'll be totally destroyed. A word Peter will use again in verse 11 and in verse 12. And all the earth and all the works that are done will be laid bare. There will be no place to hide. That's Peter's point. Nothing that you and I have done will be hidden and you and I cannot hide from the day of judgment that's coming. The only place of hiding, though Peter doesn't say it explicitly here, is in Jesus Christ, in the salvation that's available only through Him. That day will be a day of judgment, but... We are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. They will melt into liquid. It's a day of judgment. A day of destruction. 
It's also a day of blessing. And Peter talks about that in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In fact, Peter, because he wants to emphasize it, puts very first in this sentence, verse 13, but a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells we're waiting for. He puts that new heavens and new earth first because he says this is the alternative. This is the blessing. Judgment on one hand, but blessing for those who know God as a new heaven and a new earth will come qualitatively new, a new universe brought about through God's power. And it's coming. That day will come. It's interesting that the Bible, in describing the day, and describing the judgment, sometimes, as Peter does, uses this very apocalyptic language of burning and dissolving and utter destruction. And other times it uses language that sounds like God is just going to renew, remake the earth. Sometimes it seems like there is total discontinuity between what we have now and and what's coming. And other times it's an emphasis on the fact that it's a new heavens and a new earth, but there's some continuity with the past. You say, well, which is it? Really good question. I think the reason that Peter uses this language, the reason that we don't get all the details is because it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And while we may not know exactly what the destruction will look like and what the changes will look like, we do know with certainty what's ahead. A new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells continually, permanently, and forever. That's our hope. If we know Jesus Christ is Savior, that's what is ahead. That's the day that is coming through the power of God. And it is as certain as the promises of God. In fact, again, Peter, reflecting, I think, on Matthew 24, where Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The certainty of God's promise. A new day is coming. We can ground our hope in that eternity because God has promised that. But will you be part of that new day? You only become part of that new day of blessing through faith in Jesus Christ and what He did when He died on the cross to pay for your sins so that He took that judgment and you don't have to. Maybe Jesus is waiting for some of you here or some of you who are watching. Maybe that's part of his slowness is calling you to repentance. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't ignore the warning that the day is coming. When our children were little, we often vacationed at a place called Fontana Village in North Carolina. It's right by the Fontana Dam, which is built between North Carolina and Tennessee. A massive dam built in the 1940s. And when it was completed, the valley was flooded to produced the reservoir there. And people were warned that the valley was going to be flooded, and when it was flooded, it took out all of the roads in that area of the valley. Well, if you were to walk the North Shore Trail around that dam, you might come to something like this. Because there are five or six rusted out 1920s, 1930s cars sitting there. And the best I can piece together, it's that 
a few people didn't listen to the warning. And all of a sudden, the valley is flooded, and there is no way to get their cars out anymore. I want you to know that this is the warning that judgment's coming. Peter warns us it is certain. God has promised it. He will bring it about by His power, and you and I need to be ready. And that begins by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us who've done that, we just need to remember that life's not going to be easy. Hard things will come. Wrong may seem, as you heard earlier, may seem to win for a time. Suffering happens, but we can look up. We're called to look up. We're called to look to our eternity-rooted hope in Jesus. And because that is true, it should change how we live. The goal of our life is not to build a great retirement. Nothing wrong with building a good retirement fund. The goal of our life isn't to store up a large bank account. There's nothing wrong with saving for the future, but that's not the goal of life. The goal of life is not to accumulate stuff. That seems almost criminal to say in December with Christmas coming, right? But that's not the goal of life. There's nothing wrong with stuff. I like unwrapping presents too. But that's not the goal. Because all of that is going to be burned up. There's a conservative Jewish rabbi named Chaim Herzog. He's done some writing. And for a while he lived in Jerusalem. And he lived in a small apartment. And in that apartment there was a desk, a chair, and a bed. One day a wealthy American from New York came to visit him and when she walked in she said, Rabbi, is this your home? And he said, yes. And she said, where's your furniture? And he paused for a minute and he looked at her and he said, where's your furniture? And she said, well, I'm traveling. I didn't bring my furniture with me. He said, ah, I'm traveling too. That's a great perspective, isn't it? We're just traveling And all that stuff that we may try to lug along with us, it's going to burn. It's not our hope. Our hope is in the certainty of God's coming day. There's a second truth about that day that Peter wants to nail into our minds so that we grab a hold of and hang on to our eternity-rooted hope. And that truth is simply that our hope must be lived out now. That's part of what we just said, not building, or building our lives on things that will burn up. But Peter develops that thought. He wants us to understand that hope, eternity-rooted hope, is not passive. It's not that we go out and sit on a mountaintop and wait for Jesus to come. People historically have made that error at times, haven't they? Our eternity-rooted hope is active. It has to be lived out now. And Peter points out to us in the context of this passage that our hope should produce Christ-like character in us. He writes in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Everything's going to be dissolved, so it is necessary. That's the idea of ought, that oughtness is. It is necessary for us to be different. 
It's necessary for us to live lives of holiness and godliness. Quite literally, Peter says, lives of holinesses and godlinesses, which is terrible English. But I think his point is, every area of life needs to be holy, set apart to God, and godly, devoted to Him. And so he makes it plural. We are to live our lives with holinesses and godlinesses impacting them. We're to to live differently than this doomed world because we know a better new world is coming. And because we know that in that world only righteousness dwells, we are to work now to be becoming more and more and more righteous in preparation for that world. In fact, in verse 14, Peter says we're to expend great effort. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Expend great effort to be found by Him when He comes without spot or blemish and at peace. Those words spot and blemish are the same exact words Peter uses in 1 Peter, his first letter, chapter 1, verse 19, to describe Jesus, that he's a lamb without spot or blemish. And so he says, I'm calling you to be like Jesus, to be Christ-like, to not have sins in your life that are unconfessed to God. Because without Christ, without forgiveness, we have all kinds of spots and blemishes. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we're to be daily confessing our sins and working at Christ-like character so that we are ready for that world that's coming. Our hope isn't passive. It's lived out. And when I read that about being without spot or blemish, I remembered a a story from Reader's Digest a number of years ago in the humor in uniform section. A man named Dick Dayton writes in and says, One of our Navy boot camp instructors at Great Lakes Naval Training Center gave us a tip on how to cover stains on our dress white uniforms. He said that just before our next inspection, he would give us a box of chalk to use to cover the stains. My bunkmate, who hated scrubbing his clothes, did a haphazard job of readying his uniform for the inspection. I'll cover any spots with the white chalk, he told me. True to his word, our instructor gave us the chalk 30 minutes before inspection. It was the prettiest shade of pink I've ever seen. See, that his bunkmate thought he would cover up those stains on his uniform and that didn't work and it doesn't work for you and me to say, I'll just kind of paper over my sins. The only cleansing for sin is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we take our sins to Him and He forgives us and then we can be without spot and blemish before our Lord when He comes. But that's a daily thing because daily those spots and blemishes keep coming as we sin. Notice that Peter closes the word with at peace. Longfellow's poem that was sung earlier, Peace on Earth, that's the peace that the angel's talking about. When he talks about peace, he's talking about a peace with God 
that is available through Jesus Christ because He's covered our sins. He's taken care of those sins and forgiven them. And when we know our relationship with God is right, we can rest at peace. Our hope must be lived out in Christ-like character. Secondly, Peter says, our hope enables us to wait expectantly. In verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Verse 13, but according to His promise, we are waiting. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting, and the word here is not the idea of sitting back, it's the idea of anticipating and expecting as we wait. Waiting is not passive. In fact, Peter shows us that by that phrase in verse 12 that's a little difficult to understand. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, it could be translated waiting for and hastening to, that is, anticipating the coming. But the most normal translation of that phrase would be exactly how the ESV has it. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You say, well, wait, wait a minute. How can we hurry God along? I mean, we, we, we know God's sovereign. We know He's got this plan all laid out. We can't change God's plan. So how in the world can we hasten the coming? Well, we're stepping into that realm of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and putting those together in a way that's above our pay grade. But I think what Peter is doing here is thinking back again to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He's already alluded to it several times, and now I think that's what he's saying. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So spreading the gospel to all of the world is part of what will happen before the end comes. And so in God's sovereign plan, your witness to people and my witness to people, our sending of missionaries around the globe is part of hastening on the day of God. Does it change his timetable? No, but he's built into his plan our work. Peter says the same thing when he speaks to the Jewish people in Acts 3. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you, Jesus. Peter says, if you Jews will repent, that will hurry along the coming of the Messiah. So when Peter writes here in 2 Peter that you and I can hurry along the day of the Lord, what he's saying is, God uses us in His sovereign plan. And we are to be active and we are to be faithful in spreading the gospel because God is waiting for people to repent. In fact, it fits with what we saw last week where we are to pray and somehow in His sovereign plan, God has incorporated our prayers that His kingdom would come and His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is absolutely sovereign over the timetable. But in His grace, He includes our activity in His sovereign plan. Hope is active. 
And Peter closes the book with a couple of verses that show that, and we're not going to spend time digging into all of this. But notice how active our hope is. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of the lawless people and lose your own stability. Peter says your hope needs to be actively on guard so that your faith isn't swept off its feet by lawless people. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your hope is to be active so that you are daily growing in grace and knowledge. You're growing to be more like Jesus every day. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Your faith, your hope is to be active so that you are glorifying God right now and so that you will be glorifying God in the day of eternity which is an unusual phrase. Often the scriptures, the books will end with forever, but Peter deliberately says the day of eternity because he's been talking about the day of the Lord. And he says that day is coming, so glorify God now so that you will glorify Him then. That's active. Our hope is active. We must live out our hope right now, brothers and sisters. We must be growing in Christ-like character and being a godly witness to those who don't know Him. That's what it means to wait in hope, to live like Jesus every day and to look for Jesus to come back every day. Being Scottish, I resonated with a story about a Scotsman who was taking a train trip. And soon his fellow passengers noticed something very odd. Because every time they would stop at a station, the Scotsman would get off and go into the depot, and then he would come back and get on the train. After it had happened about four or five times, one of them worked up the courage to say to him, why do you get off at every stop and then get back on the train? The Scotsman looked at him and he said, ah, oh, laddie, you see, my doctor has told me that I have only a short time to live. My heart could fail at any moment, so... I just buy a ticket from station to station. Isn't that us? Living from station to station, knowing that at any moment Jesus could come back. And we need to be ready for His return. Followers of Jesus live with eternity-rooted hope. A hope that rests in the certainty that God will keep His promises and Jesus will return and that day will be ushered in and a hope that must be lived out right now. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, can I encourage you, you need to make that decision today. Right where you're seated, you can simply bow your head and you can pray something like this, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not ready to meet you. I know I cannot cleanse my sin myself, but I know you died to do that. I ask that you would cleanse me and forgive me of my sins and make me your child. And if you pray that in your own words, he'll save you. And you will not have to face the judgment of the day of the Lord, but rather the blessing of the day of the Lord. And if you know Jesus, as most of us do, then let's remember that our hope isn't rooted here. It's rooted in eternity. 
And we ought to be living station to station as waiting for Jesus to come back. Eternity-rooted hope means looking beyond this life to the restoration of all things when Jesus returns and living ready for His return. Or if you want to say it a little more succinctly, a new universe is in our future. So live like it in the present. Let's pray together. Father, help us to do that. Help us to anchor our hope not in this world, not in our material things, not in a political party, not even in the great country that you've given to us. Help us to anchor our hope in your new day that is certainly coming. And help us to live like it as we move through this day and this week and this wonderful Christmas season. Help us to live in the light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.